This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, presidential campaign season in both Honduras and Chile. We'll review the major candidates and the issues, and those races include three strong female candidates who are ahead in the polls. But first, Megan Eckhamel has the latest on the diplomatic spat between Caracas and Washington, along with all the rest of our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Venezuela eroded this week as both countries expelled diplomats. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro began the round of expulsions after he accused the Chargé d'Affaires in Caracas of having links to the recent electrical blackouts that hit the country, beyond sabotage. He also accused the U.S. of plotting with the opposition to derail local and regional elections coming in December. We have detected and we have been following it for several months to a group of officials from the U.S. Embassy in Caracas, in Venezuela. These officials are linked with the extreme right of Venezuela. They give funds and promote actions to sabotage the electrical system, to sabotage the economy of Venezuela. And I have the evidence. These accusations come on the heels of Maduro, canceling his speech at the United Nations. Maduro claimed he could not come to New York because Venezuela's intelligence services detected a plot to assassinate him. Maduro's administration often uses conspiracy theories and allegations to build support for its views. The U.S. State Department denied there was any truth to Maduro's allegations and responded by expelling three Venezuelan diplomats. The U.S. and Venezuela have not exchanged ambassadors in the past three years. Cuba wants to hang on to its athletes. The island country previously prevented its athletes from signing contracts abroad, but new reforms are aimed at ending the traffic in athletes out of Cuba who want to sign big contracts. The reforms will mean Cuban athletes can sign contracts with foreign teams, but they have to pay a tax to support both Cuban sports and the Cuban government. The reforms could give Cuba a needed boost in tax revenue from the multi-million dollar contracts its athletes will likely attract, especially for baseball players. However, the reforms could still run afoul of the Helms-Burton law in the U.S., which restricts U.S. firms from doing any business that could contribute to support for the Cuban government. U.S. civil rights activist Jesse Jackson wants to travel to Colombia to negotiate a hostage situation. Colombian rebels, the FARC, are holding a former U.S. soldier. They've held him since June. Jackson claims that Kevin Scott Sute, the former U.S. soldier, is simply a lost tourist. The rebels claim Sute is a mercenary. Representatives of the FARC in Cuba say they are open to Jackson negotiating Sute's release. However, Colombia's president, Juan Manuel Santos, has rejected Jackson's offer and said only the Red Cross will be able to negotiate for Sute's release on behalf of the Colombian government. 
Officials in Argentina are launching another investigation into the 1994 bombing of an Argentine Jewish community center. Argentine courts accused Tehran of supporting the bombing. The blast killed 85 people. Iran has committed to help Argentina get to the bottom of the crime. Investigative teams will be formed in Geneva, Switzerland next month. The investigation is a step in Iran's effort to mend ties with the West. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. And before we get to our interviews, just a bit more thanks to our audience. This episode marks our 100th program. We want to thank our listeners in the U.S., Latin America, Europe, Canada, and Australia for all the support. And now to our in-depth discussions. Next month, voters in Honduras head to the polls to elect a new president. However, the presidential coup of four years ago continues to haunt the electoral process. Professor Dana Frank of the University of California at Santa Cruz came to our studios to discuss the elections. Frank has written a book and various articles about Honduras, including pieces in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and Miami Herald. Here are excerpts from our discussion. The current Honduran president was elected in an illegitimate election in November of 2009 um, that, was took, that was controlled by the very same military that had perpetrated the coup. It was boycotted by all international observers except the International Republican Institute and some delegates from the National Democratic Institute. The president that took power at that time, Porfirio Pepe, Pepe Lobo, has perpetuated this tremendous repression um, and criminality that began with the coup. And I think people know now that Honduras is the most dangerous, one of the most dangerous places in the world, that the state security forces kill people, the police are overwhelmingly corrupt, and um, now we have some dangerous new signals as well. So in that context, we have the first election since the coup. So President Lobo's party, the National Party, they have a very strong candidate running in this particular election, Juan Orlando Hernandez, the president of the Honduran Congress. What are his chances in this election, and what do you think about him? Juan Orlando Hernandez is now the thug that runs Honduran politics, including the administration of Pepe Lobo. He was a supporter of the coup in 2009. He was a, he's been the president of Congress until very recently. In December, he was the leader of the so-called technical coup, which people may not have heard about. But at 3 in the morning, the Hungarian Congress illegally deposed four out of nine members of the Supreme Court and and, um, named their replacements by the next afternoon. Um, Most recently, the Honduran Congress um, illegally named a new attorney general for a five-year term running roughshod over the rule of law. Now, this is really important because all of this is supported by Juan Lando Hernandez, He's also been running, he's running his campaign based on the idea of sending the military out into the streets. And the military, there's a new 5,000 strong military, hybrid military police. Um, that It's a very terrifying thing. They have already been unveiled wearing uh, black masks, ski masks with little slits for their eyes and helmets. And it's and already out there in the streets sending a clear message to the hunter and people about a military takeover of the society. He's running his campaign on a law and order campaign promising to protect people from criminality. But it's really important to underscore that Juan Orlando himself is a criminal. He's, uh, as I said, he's run roughshod over the rule of law on so many fronts. He now controls the, not only the administration, the government itself, which controls the balloting process, the military that controls moving the ballots around, the Supreme Court, and the Attorney General's office. So that there's fraud, which is presumed that there's always been fraud in Honduran elections and certainly in the primaries 
and in the 2009 election, there is actually there are no institutions to appeal to. He has them all locked down, as well as this new 5,000 strong military police hybrids that are now out there in the streets or beginning to be out there in the streets. So what are the prospects for a free and fair election in that context? Running first in the polls um, is Xiomara um, Castro de Zelaya. She's the wife of the deposed President Manuel Zelaya. And she's running on a party called Libre, which grew out of the resistance to the Honduran coup. And Libre is a broad, um, broad spectrum party, um, embracing everyone from um, people who are committed to the rule of law, people who were part of the original liberal party, the, the, uh, the part of the liberal party opposed to the coup, the labor movement, the social movements, human rights people. It's a very broad um, alliance. And there's never been a successful opposition party in all Honduran history, and Xiomara has been ahead in the polls since December. The way the Honduran uh, election works is um, whoever has the most vote wins. So it's not a it's uh, not a majority, and there's no runoff. So let me stop there. Last polls I saw had her at 28 percent ahead of most everyone else, but 19 percent of the Honduran populace undecided. With um, that kind of a, a big undecided block, um, even though she's running ahead, there's not necessarily confidence that she's going to win. Well, there's, it's very unclear what's going on. If you look at different polls, some of them show she's at 29, some of them she's at 33. Juan Orlando Hernandez usually shows up at 10 to 19. And there's a wild card in between named Salvador Nasrallah, who is a totally all-over-the-map sportscaster with no political experience, running on all uh, anti-corruption platform, but he has no political machine or get-out-the-vote apparatus, so nobody thinks he could win. Even though he sometimes polls as number he, two. He yes. polls high because people are, 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 are want to register there against corruption. That's very different than what they actually will vote for, but we don't really know. There's a lot of undecideds. There's lots of small new parties. There's the remnants of the literal party. So it's not going to be, nobody's going to get a majority, that's for sure. But if there were a free and fair election tomorrow, it's very clear that Xiomara Castro de Zelaya would win. Um, the question is whether that will be allowed to happen as we go down the road. Because as I said, Juan Orlando controls all the institutions of power in the country at this point. The only real countervailing power in the country is the United States Embassy. And we can talk more than that if you want. So there, there's one scenario in which Juan Orlando Hernandez wins by fraud and the embassy recognizes him. There's another uh, scenario in which he wins by fraud and the embassy doesn't recognize him. Um, I don't think there's a real scenario of him winning in a free and fair election. Uh, the numbers just aren't there. Even with the 19% that could go all the way to him? Yeah, um, if, well, I've seen an analysis of the polling data by the blog Honduras Cultures and Politics, excuse me, Honduras Culture and Politics that people can look at. And they do an excellent job in English of analyze, analyzing the polling data. And they're, they're looking at it and saying, like, the undecideds are going to go by li for Libre, that the people are going to jump to the National Party already did. But the fact of the matter is we don't know. If the international observers, I think, really ta uh, are really doing their job, and we can talk about who they are, they don't have a track record, a good track record of the big ones, any of them, except for the Carter Center, and we really hope they're going to be there for sure. Um, but <clears throat> the OAS certified the primaries, and the primaries were very baldly fraudulent. The embassy uh, uh, recognized the 2000, the U.S. embassy em uh, recognized 
the 2009 elections uh, the, long before the polls had closed. And again, the NDI and the IRA were implicated in uh, authorizing that same fraudulent election. So who's really clean so here? So NDI would be the National Democratic Excuse Institute me, yeah. and the, the, also the Republican Institute. Which are funded by the United States government. So there is a scenario in which Xiomara can win. And um, that would mean the military would have to be out of the streets in the, in the current um, alarming form. And we'd have to have a real free and fair election on many fronts. Should she be allowed to win, it would be, again, this huge moment in Honduran history and a huge step forward toward democracy and social justice. And even beyond that, uh, toward the basic rule of law and an end to impunity, basic enforcement of laws like labor law, you name it. But Xiomara would inherit a government that is really very much bankrupt. So the issue of the bond payments, the ability to pay federal workers is really an enormous one here. And it's also, if she comes to power, it probably would not control the Congress. We don't have any polling data, but again, you'd have to have majority control the Congress as opposed to win the presidency. It's going to be a multi-party rule in the Congress. And she wouldn't, again, control the Supreme Court or the Attorney General's office. And there is now an impeachment law. And then, of course, there's the question of the military and another coup. And behind all of this is the position of the State Department. If I could go back to some things that you mentioned early in this interview... Um, you mentioned no real history of an opposition party in Honduras, but yet there is the Liberal Party that has been there for some time. Libre is a bit of a offshoot from the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party candidate, Mauricio Vieira Bermudez, he's the son of a former Honduran president. Does he have any chance in this election? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, the Liberal Party, first of all, was so discredited for leading the coup. It was Micheletti from the Liberal Party, Zelaya's own party, that led the coup. And so, first of all, it's spectacularly discredited for that. Second, um, and they're polling at like 7%, 7 or 8%. And again, it depends on the poll. Second, enormous, a lot of people from the Liberal Party have defected to Libre. Um, if you look at their rallies or their meetings, there's hardly anyone there. So no one thinks that the Liberal Party can win. It's, it's really going to come down to Juan Orlando and Xiomara. Castro de Zelaya, it is, there is a, you know, somewhere out there a possibility of Nasrallah winning, but I, I can't really imagine that really coming down to it in terms of the actual day of the election. Also earlier, you used the word criminal to refer to Juan Orlando Hernandez. So to be fair to him, um, what specifically would you point to as criminality? Well, first of all, the entire coup itself was a criminal act on the part of the Supreme Court, the military, and the majority of Congress. So I really want to underscore... And he was involved in Congress uh, at yes, that time. Yes, absolutely. Second, he was the leader of the so-called technical coup in December that illegally overthrew the Supreme Court. Um, and I want to underscore that. And he, while he is not no longer the, the, the uh, Supreme the, um president of Congress. He resigned from that in order to run his campaign. He is certainly pushing forward this, uh, pushed forward the um, illegal election of the Fiscal General. And everyone knows that since December, he's been the one holding the reins of power in Honduran history. So, but more broadly, the people need to understand that the Honduran elites in the traditional parties are deeply in bed with drug traffickers. They're deeply in bed with organized crime. They're deeply in bed with this deeply correct police. And just to give you an example, um, they tolerate and um, uh, the president, the, the Director, national director of the police is a man you might have heard of named Juan Carlos Bonilla, who, or known as El Tigre Bonilla, who is the um, head of all the police in the country, and he is a documented death squad leader. He was investigated for death squad killings between 1998 and 2002, and there's a police inspector's report documenting this. 
and he's allowed to stay on as the president of the police. Um, and also Hector Ivan Mejia, who's the head of the preventative police, is under um, is being prosecuted for having repressed the opposition on Independence Day two years ago. And he hasn't even, even though he's being prosecuted in the court proceedings, he has never even been suspended, which is really stunning. If we could, I'd like to talk a little bit about Xiomara Castro. Obviously, became very popular in her work to try to bring her husband back to power after the coup. So she has her own bona fides in, inside the Honduran political system. But yet there are many who criticize her as saying that she is merely a front to bring Mel Zelaya back into the presidency. What do you think about those criticisms? I mean, I think, I mean, Xiomara before the coup was pretty much a sort of a, a classic, not super political first lady, although she was involved in some, some community-based programs that got a lot of respect from a lot of people. Um, but when Mel was out of the country for two years, she very much came into her own as a political figure. He was not an important, except in a symbolic way, a political figure in those two years. So she's very much her own person. But I also think that they're a team. And, you know, nobody nobody says that about Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton. I mean, she has her own political life and her own opinions. Um, uh, I but think there are some Republicans who would say that, but. Uh, well, okay. Um, but, you know, I mean, we don't, I think it's when we're opposed to them, we don't, these things come up. But I, I also think they work as a team. I mean, I think he has a lot of political experience. I think you're going into a situation like this um, that is going to be very, very difficult for anybody to, to come to power in this context. Thank you, Professor Dana Frank of the University of California, Santa Cruz, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This fall's presidential campaign in Chile resonates deeply with the history of human rights attached to that country's brutal coup. Former President Michelle Bachelet heads the ticket for the leftist coalition, once called the Concertación, which now calls itself Nuevo Mayoria, or New Majority. During the Pinochet dictatorship, the government tortured Bachelet and her family members. Her father, a Chilean Air Force general who opposed the coup, died from a heart attack after one such torture session. Although Bachelet leads in the polls, her main opponent is Evelyn Matei, an economist and former labor minister representing the right-wing coalition called Renovacion Nacional, or National Renewal. Matei's father was also a general, but he was a member of the military junta that supported the coup. We journeyed to the D.C. office of Carl Meacham to speak to him about this emotional campaign. Meacham is the director of the Americas program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. Here are excerpts from our interview. A lot of folks in Chile aren't satisfied with these two options. A lot of folks are looking at options outside of the two major parties. So do we think that there's a possibility that a third party, there are lots of smaller parties that are also running here, right. that somebody could force a runoff and, and possibly beat Bachelet? Originally, folks thought that Bachelet could win in the first round. Now that's becoming more difficult. And there's some support for a couple of candidates uh, that are that will still be on the left uh, that 
could take votes away from Bachelet and force a second round. So that is that is a possibility that's becoming more and more likely. So would the second round again be between the right and the left, or could it be between it would, two it, left candidates? It would probably be between the right and the left, because the votes, the, the effect that the um, other candidates would have in the election would be to take votes away from Bachelet. She would still win, but she would have fewer votes. So, so tell me, um, who is likely to ruin her parade here as far as her march back to the presidency? There are two people. One is uh, uh, Marco uh, Enriquez Ominami, and the other one is Mr. Parisi, but they're both on the left. Uh, and in the polls, they're both polling uh, around within the left. They're both polling in the teens, in the high teens uh, of support within the left. Uh, so that's not questionable. That, that, that's real. So the issue is, do their folks come out to vote? Do their folks, uh, you know, how much are their supporters going to participate? And will they participate just to force a second round? Uh, or are they participating knowing that it's unlikely, or the fact that they know that it's unlikely that their candidates will be able to win the election? Very few scenarios in which these candidates actually win the election. Will that make them less interested in voting, period? Now, the other thing that's very important here is the fact that this is the first election in Chile where the vote is not obligatory. So folks showing up and voting is the big issue, period. You're going to have more party discipline on the right than you will on the left. A lot of people are going to say, why am I going to go vote? Bachelet is already going to win. Or why am I going to vote? I don't like any of the candidates. So that's a big issue on the left, which could contribute to this being um, harder for Bachelet uh, and the likelihood increased that Bachelet will be in a second round. So what issues are at stake in, in this election? What's propelling people to either not go to the polls or to go to the polls besides popularity? So one of the issues is the reform of the Constitution. Another issue that's important is educational reform. And another issue that I think is uh, becoming more and more relevant right now is um, the issues that have to do with energy in Chile and energy reform. Let's take those one by one. Let's start maybe with education reform. Sure. This relates to the student movement that has been out in the street for some right. years. Right. Uh, the educational reform side has to do with uh, the thinking that many folks have that the state should be in charge of financing education or improving education because Chile is a country that is very socially divided. It's a stratified country. Even though they're doing much better, much better than most countries uh, in Latin America, period, their economy is doing much better. It's a stable place to invest. Uh, people can uh, earn a living much easier in Chile. There are still a lot of social divisions, and a lot of folks see education as being... Uh, able to bridge these these divisions and increase social mobility for everybody. Don't they have one of the highest Gini coefficients, the basically inequality index? It's extremely high. Right. 
So that that shows you. So people look at the at education as being a way of shrinking the differences that exist between Chileans. So that's one thing. They also want to have a system that um, you know where regions themselves have a little bit more like what we have in this country public schools that are of high level for everyone to be able to go that are free. The other issue that we were talking about was energy reform, which is a big deal because Chile depends on most of its energy from foreign sources. It gets a lot of gas from Indonesia. Um, that's one example. Um, so for the Chileans, uh, the Chileans have gone through opportunity after opportunity of looking at different opportunities, uh, uh, different, I'm sorry, at uh, different options for energy. Nuclear options. They looked at, you know, hydro. They do a lot of hydro in the south. Geothermal. Um, and for one reason or another, some of it's environmental. You know, they don't, they want, they're environmentalists. They don't want to make their country, um, uh, they would say they don't want to ruin their country and its natural, natural resources. Um, for one reason or another, they've decided to stop each one of these reforms. Chile still is reliant on foreign sources of fuel. It's a national security problem. Then the, um, the Constitution. That's a big reform, and they're trying to figure out what kind of um, framework do they want for this reform. Do they want to have a constitutional assembly, like what we've seen in other countries, like in Ecuador or Venezuela? Uh, do we want to just make amendments to the Constitution? The big issue is that this Constitution, which is from 1980, uh, 80-81, um, was done under the Pinochet government and has uh, includes articles and includes sections that a lot of folks believe are uh, outdated, uh, of another time and that actually favor certain groups of Chileans more than others. So this is why history is resonating so much <laughs> through this particular election. Exactly. And, and also the fact that Matai's father was, was part of the junta that, that supported Pinochet. Matei's right. So it, it, it awakens a whole bunch of passions and issues um, that um, I think were brought about, well I think the apex of that was the 11th of September of this year when all of this comes out uh, again and more information comes about uh, about, uh, about human rights uh, violations. Uh, the head of Chile's secret police last week actually uh, committed suicide. Uh, all of these things are coming out. And, and Bachelet has called for further investigations right. now. Right. So it's a wound that needs to be closed that I think the Chileans right now are in the process of actually assessing the depth of the wound and I think that like in so many other situations of atrocities around the world you really can't reach closure until you understand the scope of the injustice and right now the Chileans are going through that process even though they've been fairly open and have museums that discuss this and a process, a truth commission. I think they're bumping into also the, new, the, the younger generation, the millennials, that used to be, you know, indifferent. But now there's, a, there's something that has happened, and I think this was brought about by, again, their 
educational reform, their participation in social issues also was extended into all of these other issues. Uh, this is not, and I think it's important to note this, this is not just a protest against the right. Remember, for 20 years there was the Concertación. During those 20 years, they didn't do the necessary things to reform education either. So all of this has been snowballing. And, that, and that's why we're, we are where we are right now, because it needs to be dealt with. I think that the millennial Chileans have sort of reinvigorated that discussion. And um, with social media, with, you know, it's sort of a now generation. They want to deal with things right now. They're not afraid to go out on the streets, you know, and, and, and that's what you have. Thank you. Carl Meacham, the <laughs> director of the Americas program. Center for Strategic and International Studies, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks so much. Great, thank you. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, associate producer Megan Hamill and announcer Victor Kilo. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. Mm -hmm.